Due to the graphic nature of this murder case, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes dramatizations and discussions of murder and assault that some people may find offensive. We advise extreme caution for children under 13. Mama? Sweetie? What is it? Mom, I don't feel good. Oh, you are pretty warm. Aw, oh, honey, take this Tylenol and hop back in bed. Okay, let me grab you some breakfast. Mom, I don't... What is it? I can't... I can't... This is Unsolved Murders, true crime stories on the ParCast Network. I'm your host, Carter Roy. And I'm your host, Wendy McKenzie. This is our first episode on the 1982 Chicago Tylenol Murders. You can listen to previous episodes of Unsolved Murders, as well as all of ParCast's other shows, wherever you listen to podcasts. A new episode comes out every Tuesday. You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and on Twitter at ParCast Network. Some listeners have been asking how they can help support the show. If you enjoy the podcast, the best way to do that is to leave a five-star review wherever you're listening. The first sign of impending disaster happened the morning of September 29, 1982. Mary Kellerman, a 12-year-old living in a northwestern suburb of Chicago, woke up with a sore throat and a runny nose. When she complained to her parents that she was too sick to go to school, they gave her a single capsule of extra-strength Tylenol and sent her back to bed. But instead of soothing her symptoms, things only got worse for Mary. Terrifyingly so. By 7 a.m., her parents found her collapsed on the bathroom floor, struggling to breathe. They called 911 and rushed her to the hospital, but by then it was too late. Mary died later that afternoon from a sickness that doctors could not immediately explain. It just happened so fast. One minute, Mary had been fine, if a bit under the weather, and the next, she was suffering a massive stroke. Both her parents and her doctors had no idea what could have possibly gone wrong. But they never would have suspected that the Tylenol she took that morning might have led to her death. After all, Tylenol is supposed to make you feel better. Who would suspect a drug often given to children could be fatal? Modern medicine is capable of some pretty amazing things. Today's doctors are able to transplant and replace failing organs, perform surgery on delicate brain tissue, and administer vaccines to protect people from diseases that used to kill millions. And while we might take them for granted, the little things are pretty amazing too. While our ancestors would have to suffer through headaches and colds, we can take over-the-counter pills like Advil and Tylenol to cool down fevers and get us through our day. While plenty of people treat Tylenol like a miracle cure for minor aches and pains, it really is a drug. Tylenol contains paracetamol, also known as acetaminophen. This drug was discovered in 1877, 
thanks to a chemist named Harmon Northrup Morse, experimenting with derivatives of anilines. Thank you for gathering here today, gentlemen. I know that drug trials are not the most riveting of discourses, but I believe that what I have found may revolutionize medicine as we know it. Very good, Dr. Morse. You may proceed. As you know, antipyretics derived from the Simcona tree, such as quinine, have become harder to come by. We need something to combat fever for both patient comfort and stability, and quinine has of late been in short supply for that purpose. I propose an alternative. In my study of aniline derivatives, I have come across paracetamol, a quite effective antipyretic with almost no adverse side effects. No adverse side effects, you say? What have you to say to the tests that showed cyanosis in patients treated with your paracetamol? The risk was quite minor, and although cyanosis may cause lack of blood flow to the extremities and a bluish pallor, it is not in and of itself fatal. With proper supervision... Proper supervision? Why not instead give patients a drug with lesser side effects to begin with? <clears throat> For instance... Phenacetin, my own aniline derivative. One that does not, in my estimation, cause deoxygenation of the tissues. Recall that we are trying to make patients better, Dr. Morse, not worse. Okay, I think I got some of that, but anilines, derivatives, what exactly are we talking about here? Well, I'm not a doctor, but from what I can tell, it seems like chemists in the 1800s were throwing science to the wall to see what stuck. For a while, von Mehring's drug was on top for relieving minor aches and pains until it was discovered that it could cause cancer, even in small doses. So it was back to the drawing board? Well, not quite. In 1947, scientists took another look at paracetamol and realized that von Mehring's claims that it deoxygenated tissue were wrong. It turns out paracetamol had been the safer drug all along. After a few false starts, paracetamol was released to the public in 1955 as children's Tylenol elixir. And it's been a household name ever since. For years, Tylenol was considered an incredibly safe drug when used in recommended doses. It started as a treatment for children's fevers, but quickly rose to prominence as a drug for aches and pains of people young and old. Side effects were rare, especially in otherwise healthy individuals. After all, if you intend to give an over-the-counter drug to your own children, you need to be 100% certain that it works as advertised. But Tylenol's squeaky clean reputation didn't last forever. And to find out why it was tarnished, let's dig a little deeper into the mysterious and unsolved Chicago Tylenol Murders. On September 29th, at the same time Mary Kellerman was losing the fight for her life, another man was being rushed to the hospital. Just seven miles away in the Chicago neighborhood of Arlington Heights, 27-year-old postal worker Adam Janus had also fallen to a mysterious, quick-acting illness. Like Mary, he had been young and healthy, complaining of nothing more than mild chest pains before his untimely death. However, it seemed that the only other thing Adam and Mary had in common was that they both lived in the Chicago metropolitan area. They weren't related. They never knew one another, and they hadn't recently visited any of the same places. They were perfect strangers. But although no one had noticed yet, their deaths were shockingly similar. 
For their families, one unexpected tragedy was enough. But for the Janus family, the worst was still yet to come. Mom, we came as soon as we heard. Oh, Aloja, I'm so sorry. <laughs> I can't believe it. My poor baby. How is he gone? How could this happen? Did you even know he was sick? He wasn't sick. There was nothing wrong with your brother. Then what happened? The Lord took him away from me. He said he had chest pains. That was all he said. Then he went into the bedroom and collapsed. The doctor said there was nothing they could do. It all happened at once. I can't believe it. He can't really be gone. I, I think I need to sit down. This is all making me kind of dizzy. Here, sweetheart. Have a seat. I'll see if Adam had something in the medicine cabinet. Do you think a Tylenol would help? Yes, thank you. My head is throbbing. Here you go. I think I'll take one myself. This is just too crazy. What are we gonna tell the kids? I don't even want to think about it now. Actually, I don't think the Tylenol will be enough. I'm going to have a smoke. Stanley? Son? Are you alright? Oh, God! No! That's right. Adam wasn't the only member of the Janus family to die. At 5 p.m. on September 29th, less than five hours after Adam's death, his family gathered at his house to mourn and begin planning the funeral. At this same gathering, Adam's brother Stanley and sister-in-law Teresa both collapsed from the same mysterious illness. Before the family even had time to come to terms with their loss, two more had died. As if Mary Kellerman's mysterious death hadn't been enough, the pressure was now on for investigators to figure out what exactly was killing people and how they could stop it. In the few hours after Mary Kellerman's death on September 29, 1982, things only got worse. People started dying of the same mysterious illness all over the Chicago area. At 3.45 p.m., 27-year-old Mary Reiner collapsed in front of her husband mere minutes after complaining about minor aches and pains. At 6.30 p.m., at her job at an Illinois Bell store in Chicago, 31-year-old Mary McFarland complained to her co-workers that she had a bad headache. Hello, Illinois Bell. How may I direct your call? One moment, please. Hey, Cheryl, can you take this one for me? My head is killing me. Of course. I think we've got some Tylenol or something in the back room if you want it. Third shelf to the left. Thanks. I'll be back in a minute. Five minutes later, Mary's co-workers found her collapsed and unresponsive in the back room. At 9.30 p.m., 35-year-old flight attendant Paula Prince had just sat down at O'Hare Airport. Feeling nauseous from her flight, she stopped at a nearby Walgreens for a bottle of Tylenol. Will that be all for you today, miss? Yeah, just that. I don't need a bag or anything. Just the receipt will be fine. Long night? Just got back from Vegas. I'm down to the last few Tylenol in my travel bag, and I don't know if I can make the trip back without more. Las Vegas, huh? Did you win big? Uh, no. I'm a flight attendant. 
I never actually left McCarran International. The only thing I won was a reheated airline dinner and an upset stomach. <laughs> Two days later, Paula Prince would be dead as well. By the end of the day on September 29, 1982, four people were already dead. By the next day, two more would be taken off life support. Seven otherwise healthy people died in just three days. And nobody had even the faintest idea as to why. Coming up, we'll see if we can find some answers to these mysterious deaths. Now, back to the story. In September of 1982, after seven people suddenly passed away under mysterious circumstances, medical examiners in Chicago were scrambling to uncover exactly what was happening. The Janus family had the most obvious link between deaths, and initially doctors had the surviving family members quarantined while they ran every test they could think of. At first, they suspected the Janus's had contracted carbon monoxide poisoning, as all the deaths had seemingly occurred in the same house. Carbon monoxide buildup most commonly happens when an enclosed space is improperly ventilated. Anything that burns fuel could be the culprit. Gas stoves, space heaters, furnaces, and car engines can all produce enough carbon monoxide to kill if used improperly. And when too much carbon monoxide is inhaled and enters the bloodstream, it can cause dizziness, headaches, shortness of breath, and loss of consciousness. It can even be fatal under the right conditions. But none of the surviving family members who had visited the house showed any signs of poisoning. Other than their mental anguish, they were as healthy as could be. It was a nurse investigating the Janus family deaths who first noticed the connection. Helen Jensen had been sent with a group of public health officials to Adam Janus's home at 10 p.m. on the night of the 29th. She quickly noticed something was missing. We'll check the basement next. Apparently the family had some kind of metalwork done down there. I heard that sometimes they use cyanide to polish that stuff off. Maybe they got in contact with it. I'll get right on it. You think it was the metal? Whole family dies in an afternoon? We ruled out carbon monoxide. You got a better explanation? There was a nurse here earlier, said she had a theory. What have you got there? Extra-strength Tylenol. She found it laying open in the bathroom medicine cabinet. What about it? Well, the bottle holds 30 capsules, and she counted 24. That's six capsules missing and three people dead. She also remembered one of the Janus family members saying Stanley and Teresa had headaches right before they died. And look at this. She found a receipt in the bathroom wastebasket. Adam bought the pills the morning he died. This nurse thinks it's the Tylenol they took that killed them. It's not the Tylenol. Three people couldn't overdose on six pills. I didn't mean to imply they overdosed. She thought the capsules might have been tainted. Tainted capsules? Listen to yourself. I took a Tylenol myself just last night, and I haven't gone into cardiac arrest. See? Jim's heart is fine, and he's got more pizza grease in his veins than blood. Hey, Harry, how's that basement looking? All clear, sir. No cyanide on the metal. Yeah, I don't know about it either, but if that nurse is right, it's the Tylenol. Although no one believed her at first, Helen Jensen was right and she knew it. 
She couldn't sleep that night. She felt that she couldn't stand by and do nothing while more unsuspecting people died. Her conscience was killing her. The next morning, she put in a call to Johnson & Johnson, the manufacturers of Tylenol, pleading for them to recall their product. She called the local police department as well, knowing that the bottles would need to be taken off the shelves immediately. Jensen was working quickly with what she knew, but wasn't the only investigator looking into the Tylenol angle. Nick Pichos, an investigator with the Cook County Medical Examiner's Office, was already on the case. Early on the morning of the 29th, he had been notified about Mary Kellerman's death shortly after it happened. He hadn't thought about it too much, but immediately ordered an autopsy because of her young age and the mysterious circumstances of her death. Later, he was also notified about the Janus family deaths, which is when he started to get suspicious that something bigger was going on. Now, I know it might be nothing, but Nurse Jensen reported that she found an uncapped Tylenol bottle at the Janus household. And Nick Pichos thinks Mary Kellerman took some before her death as well. The report says here that paramedics cataloged one bottle of 500 milligrams extra strength Tylenol capsules when they took the girl in. Lord knows why they decided to catalog the bottle, but it certainly helps with our possible chain of evidence. Can we get our hands on it for testing? I'll call into the police department in Elk Grove, see if we can send it to the lab. On a hunch, Pichos called the police department in Elk Grove Village, telling them to check the Tylenol bottle from the Kellerman house against the bottle from the Janus house. You got both bottles? Courier delivered it less than 10 minutes ago. We've already sent off some samples, but I thought you might want to take a look at them, just in case. Great. So which is which? This one is from the Janus house, and this is from the Kellermans. Well, they're both extra strength, that's for sure. And the packaging looks new. One pill was missing from the Kellerman bottle, six from the Janus bottle. Right. Let's see what else we can find. Hmm. No dents or deformations in the plastic. All the pills look the same. Gel capsules, red on the left side, white on the right. All the markings say Tylenol 500 milligrams, so that's all correct. Let's see if we can't find a control number on the bottle. This one says MC2880. What about that one? MC2880. Wait, let me see... Whoa. Bingo. We found our link. Jensen and Pichos were right. Who should I call? Everyone. Call the Elk Grove PD, the hospital, the coroner. We need to confirm this, fast. The tests confirmed it. Both bottles were from the same manufacturing lot. Mary Kellerman and the Janus family deaths finally had a concrete link. But there was still an important question to answer. What was actually wrong with the pills? Chief Medical Examiner speaking. Hey, thanks for taking my call. You know I hate to take it to the boss, but I'm honestly stumped here. No problem. What do you got so far? Nothing. They just look like capsules. No defects, no funny colors, nothing. I just thought of something. Did you try sniffing them? Sniffing? What am I, a bloodhound? Just humor me. Huh. You know, it's funny. They do smell a little bit like... I can't place it. Bitter almonds? Almonds! Yeah, that's it. How did you know? Cyanide. That's what you're smelling. And a good thing, too, because only about half the population can detect it by smell. Damn! We'll run a chemical test to make sure, but if what you're saying is right, we need to move fast. 
and work fast they did. Jensen and Pichot suspected the capsules were poisoned by the afternoon of the 29th, and they were sent in for testing by 9.30 that night. Forensic analysts worked late into the night, and lab results confirmed the investigators' suspicions by 1 a.m. the morning of the 30th. By 10 a.m. that same day, all the Tylenol was off the shelves in every store in Arlington Heights, the neighborhood where the Janus family lived. Will that be all today? Yes, thank you. All right, uh, your total will be $10.85. Oh, I think I have the change. Excuse me, sir. May I speak to the store manager? That would be me. How can I help you, officer? There's been an emergency recall for... Excuse me, sir, is that Tylenol you're buying? Yes, why? I'm sorry, but we need to confiscate that from you immediately. But he already rung me up. I understand, but he'll have to reverse the transaction. We're under orders to remove all bottles of Tylenol from the shelves immediately. Remove? From which stores? All of them, sir. Anyone selling Tylenol in the Arlington Heights area. They may have been tampered with. You're the third store we visited today, and we have plenty more to go. I... well, I suppose if it's that serious... Tylenol's on aisle seven. But what about my headache? I guess you'll have to take an aspirin. Johnson and Johnson responded quickly as well and put out a nationwide recall for their Tylenol capsules. 31 million bottles were pulled in all at a cost of nearly $100 million to Johnson and Johnson. The company had no idea how cyanide could have possibly gotten into their product, but it was better safe than sorry. They also knew that this was too big of a story to cover up. When the lab results from the capsules came back, investigators found that they were filled with 65 milligrams of cyanide, more than a thousand times the lethal dose for an average person. With the recall in place, the national panic quickly grew. Although as far as anyone knew, the poisonings had been limited to the Chicago area. Anxious calls from all over the country were pouring into Johnson & Johnson headquarters and hospitals alike. Cook County Medical Examiner's Office, how can I help you? I, I took a Tylenol this morning before I heard the news, but now everyone says that it's all been poisoned and I think I'm gonna throw up and- Please calm down. If you're well enough to call us right now, you'll be perfectly fine. Just don't take any more, okay? The media circus was unavoidable. For the next few weeks, it was all the country could talk about. Who was behind these poisonings? Why had they targeted Tylenol? Would another drug be next? Despite the recall, it soon became clear that the tampering didn't happen at the production plant. Although the first two bottles found were from the same lot, investigation of the deaths of the other victims proved that the bottles had all come from different plants and had been sold at different drugstores. The only other option was that somebody had taken the bottles off the shelves, laced the capsules with cyanide, and put them back to be sold to unsuspecting buyers. The poisoning seemed to be truly random, but the fact that all deaths had occurred within the same few days made them even more mysterious to investigators. And with such a wide net to cast, police had more dead-end leads than they knew what to do with. They questioned family members and friends of the victims extensively, testing the theory that one victim in particular might have been the target, while the rest were a cover-up. You've questioned Mary Reiner's husband for hours. Don't you think he's been through enough? 
I'm just trying to cover my bases here. But why are you even treating him as a suspect? I thought these were random poisonings. We think they're random poisonings. That's the current theory. But think about it. What if you got sick of your wife and wanted to poison her discreetly? You can't just slip her some cyanide in her mac and cheese. You'd be the first and most likely suspect. But if you poison her Tylenol first, then do the same to a bunch of random bottles of pills, you obfuscate your own involvement. We're talking about a criminal with a complete disregard for human life here. That's diabolical. But it's possible. So we have to check it out. In addition to friends and family of the victims, police looked at work rosters and custodial staff at every drugstore where the tainted Tylenol was sold. They investigated Johnson & Johnson for possible white-collar crime. They took calls from every psychic, medium, and crazy aunt who called into their tip line. They brought in every person that had been arrested for shoplifting in one of the affected drugstores, just to double-check if they might have had a motive for murder. They even sent officers to stake out the victims' graves in case their real killer came by to gloat one last time. They thought of everything, but as fast as the leads came in, they quickly fizzled out. That is, until an anonymous letter showed up at Johnson & Johnson headquarters, a letter that might have come straight from the hand of the killer themselves. Coming up, we'll hear more about the letter and how it opened an entirely new avenue for the case. Now, back to the story. On October 6, 1982, Johnson & Johnson was in a tight spot. They had already recalled 31 million bottles of Tylenol from their shelves, thanks to seven fatal cyanide poisonings linked to their product a week earlier. And the trail leading to the person responsible for the deaths had spiraled out of control. There were thousands of leads, and all of them had turned out to be bunk. But the most promising lead yet would be delivered right to their doorstep. A single unassuming letter sent to Johnson & Johnson would reignite the hunt for a killer. Gentlemen, as you can see, it is easy to place cyanide into capsules sitting on store shelves. And since the cyanide is in the gelatin, it is easy to get buyers to swallow the bitter pill. Another beauty is that cyanide operates quickly. It takes so very little, and there will be no time to take countermeasures. If you don't mind the publicity of these little capsules, then do nothing. So far, I have spent less than $50, and it takes me less than 10 minutes per bottle. If you want to stop the killing, then wire $1 million to bank account number 8449597 at Continental Illinois Bank, Chicago, Illinois. Do not attempt to involve the FBI or local Chicago authorities with this letter. A couple of phone calls by me will undo anything you can possibly do. The Tylenol killer was now apparently showing his true motive for the murder. Cold, hard cash. Even though it sounded like it was sent from a supervillain, the FBI was quickly able to trace the letter back to its source. They lifted fingerprints from the letter itself and traced the stamp to a meter used to weigh and print postage owned by a Chicago business called Lakeside Travel. The bank account number the extortionist wanted the money wired to belonged to Frederick Miller McKay, the owner of Lakeside Travel. That sounds a little too obvious for a killer mastermind. If he really had managed to poison dozens of Tylenol bottles without a trace, wouldn't he have also been able to cover his tracks when sending a simple letter? The FBI thought so too. 
investigators realized things didn't add up. For one thing, Lakeside Travel had gone out of business earlier that year, and the postmark on the letter was dated for April 15, 1982, a week before Lakeside had gone belly up. Secondly, McKay's fingerprints didn't match the ones found on the letter. So the question became, who had a grudge against Frederick McKay? When questioned, McKay pointed the finger at Bob and Nancy Richardson. Nancy had been hired with his company a year before the incident, and when McKay's business was already starting to go under, McKay couldn't afford to pay Nancy her last paycheck, and their last interaction had ended in a shouting match. McKay didn't know it yet but he had guessed right about who set him up. On McKay's testimony, the FBI issued an arrest warrant for Bob and Nancy Richardson, including a photo of the couple. The Kansas City Police Department immediately recognized Bob Richardson, but not under that name. They had a warrant out for his arrest under his real name. As this man is still alive, for privacy reasons, we'll call him Carl Sumter, although that's not his actual name. Carl was on the run for both tax fraud and murder. In 1978, four years before the Tylenol murders began, Carl Sumter and his wife Carla had run their own tax service out of a rundown building in Kansas City, Missouri. Sumter and Sumter Business Tax Service was still small and didn't have too many clients, but one of its most loyal was 72-year-old Raymond West. West was older, but still in good shape. So when his best friend, Charles Banker, reported him missing on July 23, 1978, it wasn't immediately cause for concern to the police. They called around to neighbors, including Sumter, to see if anyone knew where West might have gone. Oh, Ray, I think he mentioned a trip to the Ozarks last week. Told me he'd be gone for a few days with his new girlfriend. He's fine, just getting a change of scenery. Sumter's explanation was good enough for police, but not for Banker. He had known West for 30 years, and his friend had never mentioned having a girlfriend, much less one with which he'd take a trip to the Ozarks. After a week, West still hadn't returned. Then another week went by, and another. After 21 days in 95-degree heat, several neighbors on the block of the West home reported that it had started to stink like death. It doesn't take an evil genius to figure out what happened next. Police! Nothing seemed out of place on the first floor, save for the smell. Everything was in its rightful place. Not a speck of dust out of order. A note had been left on the living room table. It read, Please don't disturb until after one, sleeping late, Raymond. The second floor was a different story. In one of the upper bedrooms, police found a foot-long stain running down the wall from the ceiling. There was only one place left to look. They opened the attic, and what they found was more grisly than they could have imagined. In the attic, there was a badly decomposed body. It was laying face down on the attic floor, with its arms tied behind its back and wrapped with a sheet. Its legs had been severed at the hips and stacked next to its head. It was partially covered with a garbage bag and laid under a pulley system with a snapped rope, suggesting that the body had at one point been hoisted to the rafters. Everything else had been soaked in blood, 
pus and decomposing flesh. The blood had seeped so deeply into the floor that it had soaked into the insulation and dripped into the room below. At first, investigators couldn't even identify the body because of how badly it had decomposed. And since West had had dentures for years, dental records were out. However, DNA from one of the few hairs the body had left confirmed it. Raymond West was dead. Carl Sumter was the primary suspect in the murder, thanks to one glaring piece of evidence. A $5,000 check drawn from West's bank account made out to Sumter. The check was dated for July 23, 1978, the same day West went missing. Sumter was brought in for questioning and immediately told police the check had simply been a loan for a business expansion. However, he hadn't actually been able to cash it without West there to prove its validity. No, no, no. I'm telling you, there's no way Ray would have written that boy a check. Not for $5, not for 50 certainly not for 5000 Can you tell me why you believe that, Mr. Banker? Ray wasn't mean, but he was miserly, cautious with his money. He grew up in the Depression, like the rest of us, and he knew the value of a dollar. I remember a while back, he lent Frank Miller down the street a $5 bill to pay for gas and he bellyached to me about it for a whole week before he got his money back. Five whole dollars, and it was all he talked about. But I didn't hear anything from him about a $5,000 check. Just wasn't like him not to mention it. Mr. Sumter claimed the check was for a business expense. <laughs> Pardon my French officer, but that's bullcrap. That boy's been his neighbor for, what, a couple years now? and he trusts him well enough to loan him a down payment on a new car? No, I don't think so. I wasn't born yesterday, sir, and neither were you. Carl Sumter is lying through his teeth. Police agreed with Banker's assessment. Soon, they were able to get a warrant to search Sumter's car. All right, I've got the trunk open. Let's see what we've got. Hmm, spare tire and flashlight. So far, so normal. Is that a first aid kit? Might be. The case is a bit big, though, and there's no markings on it. Let's open her up. Ooh. Jackpot. Trash bags, check. Rope, check. Duct tape, check. Let's not get too hasty. Could still be a repair kit of some kind, maybe a camping pack. With a bundle of Raymond West's personal checks stashed at the bottom? That'll take a bit more explanation from Mr. Sumter. Sounds like a slam dunk for the prosecution, no? No, unfortunately, no. Sumter's lawyer was slippery. Although Sumter was initially charged with capital murder, his lawyer got the case dismissed due to mishandling of evidence, and Sumter was set free. That's crazy. They had all the evidence right in front of them. But the prosecution was able to argue that police didn't follow proper procedure while they were collecting it. Sumter's lawyer argued that since Sumter was never read his Miranda warning as he was being arrested, all evidence gathered after that point, including the rope, trash bags, and checks found in his car, were inadmissible in court. The judge agreed. And so Carl Sumter got away with murder. Almost certainly. He and his wife skipped town shortly thereafter, changed their names to Bob and Nancy Richardson, and got hired by Frederick McKay at his travel agency. Which brings us back to 1982. 
With his fake identity, penchant for defrauding people out of their money, and prior involvement with murder, Sumter seemed like a shoe-in for the role of the Tylenol killer. But there was one problem. Sumter and his wife were 800 miles away from Chicago at the time. And since investigators had already determined that the person who tainted the Tylenol would have to have been physically removing the bottles from shelves in Chicago and replacing them by hand, this seemed to rule out the Sumters. The couple had moved to Manhattan shortly after Lakeside Travel went under and had been there at the time of the poisonings. It seems that Carla Sumter had taken the necessary envelopes, postage stamps, and bank account numbers they would need to frame McKay for some sort of crime. Then the couple had simply bided their time until a suitably devious crime made the news. It seemed that what Sumter really wanted to get out of all this wasn't money or to frame McKay for murder, but rather spark an investigation into McKay's past. His revenge was more subtle than it first appeared. Sumter believed McKay's business had gone under due to fraud and hoped that an investigation would expose McKay's true crimes of embezzlement and mismanagement. On October 27, 1982, he said as much in a letter sent to the Chicago Tribune. It is my hope that by sending the information to the press, those powers which have prevented an investigation will acquiesce so that the matter can be properly examined. I also remind you that these are the same investigators who engineered the placing of my wife's name and my name on prime suspect lists without bothering to determine that we had both moved from the Chicago area nearly a month before the Tylenol poisonings began. After hearing those people in the news and reading the reports, it sounded like they already had us convicted of something we could not have possibly done. We continue to respect the law as an institution and a concept. I have attempted to act as an informant, to act on the side of the law. But the FBI and their state associates have used their precious resources to terrorize, humiliate, ridicule, and speculate in public about the private lives of my family and me. Is this what a person who attempts to be a good citizen should expect from the United States Department of Justice? The good citizen spiel didn't convince anyone. Despite once more attempting to skip town and change his name, Sumter was arrested at a library in Midtown Manhattan on December 13, 1982. He had been using the library's reference section to monitor newspapers out of Chicago and Kansas City, seeing if investigators were any closer to tracking him down. They were closer than he realized. A librarian recognized Sumter from his wanted photo, and police were immediately called to cover all possible exits. But Sumter came without a fuss. As an officer approached him at one of the study tables, Sumter simply stood up and followed him without a word. Carl Sumter, you are under arrest for attempted extortion. You have the right to remain silent. Anything you say can and will be used against you in a court of law. Carla surrendered herself to police when she heard her husband had been arrested. However, there wasn't enough evidence to charge her with any crime, and she refused to help investigators further. Even without her help, Sumter was sentenced to 20 years in prison for extortion, of which he served 13. He was released on parole in 1995, and has always maintained his innocence in the actual Tylenol murders themselves. But thanks to his high-profile manhunt and arrest, 
Many people to this day still believe he was behind the poisonings after all. And some erroneously believe that he served time for the Tylenol murders themselves. However, he was only officially charged with attempted extortion, not murder or tampering. So, where does that leave us? Well, Carl Sumter was the most high-profile suspect in the case, despite it being very unlikely that he was the actual killer. He was too far away to physically tamper with the bottles himself, and his motives seemed to revolve more around framing his old boss for murder rather than committing murder himself. 36 years later, with Sumter ruled out, the case is still unsolved. But that doesn't mean that Sumter was the only suspect, or even the most outlandish one. We'll look at years of potential copycat killers, a fatal bar fight, and a possible connection with an infamous domestic terrorist. And maybe we'll even uncover the real Tylenol killer. You can find Unsolved Murders and all of ParCast's podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Play, CastBox, TuneIn, and your favorite podcast directory. A new episode comes out every Tuesday. You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and on Twitter at ParCast Network. And if you enjoy the podcast, the best way to support us is by leaving a five-star review wherever you listen. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time. If we live till next time. Unsolved Murders True Crime Stories was created by Max Cutler and developed by Ron Cutler. It is a production of Cutler Media and is part of the ParCast Network. It is produced by Max and Ron Cutler, sound designed by Kenny Hobbs, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro and Paul Mahler. Additional production assistance by Maggie Admire and Carly Madden. Unsolved Murders is written by Jordan Lyric and stars Carter Roy and Wendy McKenzie. The amazing cast of voice actors includes, by alphabetical order, Mike Capozzi, Jerry Courtney Austine, Kimberly Holland, Steve Pinto, Greg Polson, and Daniel Velasquez. Unsolved Murders.